Colossians chapter 1 last week, so we're getting into Colossians chapter 2. I hope to cover the first eight verses. I think there's a break after verse 8. Verse 8 is kind of a transitional verse, but uh, it, it makes a good break for what we're talking about this morning. And as I said, we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving, which is mentioned in verse 7 at the very end, abounding in Thanksgiving. Very timely because uh, we've just celebrated Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, as we begin, I want to put an illustration in your mind. I think this will help you appreciate Paul's words in Colossians 2. And here's, here's the image. Picture yourself living in one of those ancient cities, one of those cities fortified with, with great walls. And you're living in those ancient times within the walls of that city, and you're not going outside because there's an enemy out, outside the walls besieging the city, cutting off food supplies and water. And the situation seems quite hopeless because this enemy is quite formidable. Now picture yourself in that situation. What do you do? There's not a whole lot that you can do. There were some defenses that could ward off an attack, but eventually, if the army outside was greater and more powerful and had enough resources to outlast you, they would eventually breach the wall and conquer the city, and many people would die. And you're one of those people that's looking at maybe weeks to live, maybe days. But then someone tells you, a secret. There is a song that you can sing that will drive the enemy away. Now, what would you do? You learn that there are enemies without and there are spies within the city. You don't know who to trust. Somebody tells you, if you can sing this song, it will drive the enemy away. They can't stand it. They cannot bear to be in the presence of this song. You go up on the top of the wall where they can hear you. You bring as many people with you as you can. You teach them this song. You sing the song. You see the enemy withdraw. They're repulsed by this song. It works. What would you do? You'd sing it all day long. You'd wake up in the morning with it on your lips. You would go to bed at night singing it. You'd wake up in the middle of the night singing to make sure that that the enemy is nowhere near. And eventually, you venture outside the walls. And you are not afraid any longer because you know it works. You would sing the song all the time. Now, here's the analogy. We're in a battle. There are forces outside. Satan's forces. Very formidable. Intimidating in many ways, more powerful than we are. There are forces within our own soul that threaten to conquer our hearts, our souls. But God has given us a song. And if we sing this song and we keep it on our lips day and night, this song will drive the enemy away. He will not be able to defeat us from outside or from inside. And that song is the song of thanksgiving. If we are grateful day and night, there's no force of, of Satan 
that can overtake us. Think about it this way. Think of gratitude as a guardian. That's what I'm entitling this morning's lesson, the guardian of gratitude. And Colossians 2, 1 through 8, presents gratitude as a force to be reckoned with that will defeat the enemy if we can just keep that attitude going. It's really hard to do, right? That we have a holiday to remind us to be grateful, but one day a year is not enough. Daily, hourly, we need to count our blessings. So I'm going to break it down this way. First of all, we're going to notice that love produces growth. That's the first, well, it's pretty much throughout this, these eight verses. Love produces growth. And then we're going to note that growth yields gratitude. And then finally, we're going to notice that gratitude guards our hearts. So love, growth, gratitude. Okay, let's start with the first four verses. Noticing, number one, that love produces growth. Colossians 2, 1 through 4. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Let's stop right there. I think it's important to note the circumstances of this letter, and mackenzie has been over this with us, but Paul wrote this letter along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon from a prison cell. So when he speaks of blessings from those circumstances, we, we perk up and listen, because if he can talk about his blessings from prison, not knowing whether he will live or die, as he says in the Philippian letter, then certainly whatever circumstances we are in, we can, we can follow his example. Uh, he says that he has been in a great struggle for the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea. And verse 1, all who have not seen me face to face. He did not personally know the Colossians. And uh, it seems that he had not been to Laodicea. Colossae was in a triopolis with, with two other cities. There was Colossae. Laodicea and Hierapolis, and these cities are mentioned in these letters to Colossae and to Philemon, who lived in Colossae. Paul had not been able to visit those places, but there were Christians there, and he'd been in a great struggle, and the struggle was so great that he had landed in prison in Rome. And that's what he's talking about when he mentions his struggle. Now, why did he undergo the struggle? Look again at verse 2. He did it so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. You don't see that language a whole lot in the Bible, knit together. and It's, it's an image there that stands out. So when you see it, you notice it. And in most cases that you read about it, it's referring to friendship or to love. Uh, 
you know, the most prominent example is David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So it's the idea of, of a seam that can't be broken between these two people. They're so close together. Um, Deuteronomy 13, verse 6 defines friendship. A friend is one who is as your own soul. So that may be what that language is looking back on, that, that definition of friendship in Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Uh, you also have Ecclesiastes 4.12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So that's not knit necessarily, but entwined, and it involves fabric, so thread, you know, it, it, it relates to it. And then you have from Colossians itself, Colossians chapter uh, 3, verse 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, you have the idea of knitting, binding together. And so he went through this struggle so that they may be encouraged. Being encouraged means being knit together in love. He did it all for the sake of love. Not just his love for them, but as you read it, it's to make them stronger so that they might be bound together in love. And uh, what is the effect? Keep reading there in verse 2. Uh, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Why did, they, why did he do that? What's the purpose? What's the effect? To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So our hearts get torn and broken in the world. And sin divides us, but Paul's struggle for the faith brings us together, and that togetherness yields, that love yields understanding and insight into Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So love is a bridge to deeper understanding of Jesus Christ. Deep and confident understanding of Christ comes not just from thinking, but also from love. That, that's a new idea I want you to think about for just a moment, because most of the time we think, well, if I want to understand something better, I need to study it. And yes, you do. If you want to understand physics, you've got to study it. You want to understand math, you've got to study it. If you want to understand a person, you've got to learn a little bit about them. But if that understanding is not coupled with love, and there's no desire there to get to know that person, you either get tired before you, you get to an understanding and you quit your study, or you use the information you learn against the other person. You don't really grow closer to the person. You just look for the worst. You call out the good things, and you abuse the information. So it has to be knowledge coupled with love to get growth in understanding. And you also need to think about the converse of this. If, 
if love produces more understanding then hatred, jealousy, envy is going to cause less understanding. So it's a pitfall. You become ignorant the more you allow hatred and jealousy and envy into your hearts. So beware of that kind of contempt. Now let's go to verses 6 and 7. In verses 1 through 4, we learn that Paul's struggle yielded uh, encouragement and love among the Colossians. Let's see what happens in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So look at how he describes this deep understanding. It's being rooted and built up in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. There is an idea of growth there. Like a tree has deep roots that allows it to continue to grow and be strong and not be blown over by the winds. Whenever we love one another and are bound together in love, we grow and we put down deep roots. And as a church, we ought to be interested in that kind of growth. Sometimes we simplify our mission of making disciples into just planting seeds and doing evangelism. And look, that is extremely important. I'm not taking anything away from that. But making disciples is not just evangelizing, converting, and baptizing somebody. But a church needs continued growth so that that will continue through the generations. Because if you develop a generation that you leave in immaturity, it, it's not going to propagate itself. Eventually the church will die. And that's why at Asheville Road, when we talk about making disciples, we use those three words, seed, plant, and fruit. The seed is planting seeds of the gospel to evangelize the world and to baptize people who believe into Jesus Christ so that they become Christians and they're forgiven of their sins. The plant is the second stage of discipleship. And that's where the growth occurs. And the growth is not isolated growth as individuals, but we grow together. Picture Jesus' analogy of the vine in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. We're all branches on the vine. So there it's not rooted, but it's connection to the vine. But this idea of being rooted is the same. We're all in the same patch of ground. We're all in the same crop, whatever you want to look at, however you want to look at it. And we're growing together. We're not growing in isolation from one another. How do we do that? As a church, we do what we're doing right now. Bible study through classes. Uh, we have fellowship with one another. We have open home meetings. We have worship services where we worship God together. We gather around the Lord's table every first day of the week to commune with Jesus and one another in the blood and the body of the Lord. All of these activities, events, all of these things are tools for growth in the second stage of planting. Fruit has to do with service. When we look outwardly and we serve God and serve one another, uh, we, we are performing our responsibilities uh, 
to completion and prove to be Jesus' disciples. John 15, verse 8. Seed, plant, fruit. So this passage is about stage two, about plants growing together on the vine, uh, rooted in Jesus, and you see how you see what love has to do with that. When we're mingled together in love, growth occurs so that we're rooted, the foundation in Christ, and we're built up, that's the growth. So that's very important to notice, that love produces growth. This isn't the only passage where that takes place. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Probably a more familiar passage here. Look at what Paul says, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love. You see, truth and love are together here. You can't get understanding with just one or the other. It has to be truth in love. So speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together. See how similar this is to Colossians 2? Knit together in love, joined and held together. By every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Love produces growth. Growth, deeper knowledge and insight into the mystery of God, which is Christ. So it's not enough just to declare the truth, but uh, we have to have love. What, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3? If I have not love, I'm nothing. I have the faith to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Love is important. Without it, you can do nothing. So that's the first stage. Love produces growth. Let's look at number two. Growth yields gratitude. And uh, before we get specifically to the gratitude, let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. In verses 1 through 4, he says growth yields encouragement. So there are really two things that he talks about, but they're so closely related, we're treating them as one. And the first one is described as encouragement. Going back to Colossians Two, he says, verse two, their hearts that he he goes through the struggle that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. So the love yields encouragement. And you didn't need Paul to tell you that, right? Whenever someone shows you love, that's the most encouraging thing in the world. And there are people who do that that are very special to us in our lives, because we just need that so much. We need that so much. John Maxwell said there are three types of people in the world. There are, number one, well poisoners. They come and they poison your water. They just make you miserable. You don't like being in the same room with them. They're critical. They're unfair. They're deceitful. They gossip about you behind your back. They make the world a worse place. Well poisoners. The second group of people are lawnmowers. Not the machine, but people who mow lawns. They take care of their lives. They make them nice and neat. But when they get to the, do you ever do this? Like when you, you know exactly where the boundary between your yard and your neighbor's yard is, and you never even get an inch into their yard. They, it may be up to their knees. 
and you just mow right up to the edge. At lawnmowers, that's what they do. You just mow your yard. You don't go over and mow your neighbor's yard. You keep to yourself. You're not harming anybody, but you're not reaching out and helping anybody either. Those are the lawnmowers. So you have well poisoners, lawnmowers, and then the third group are life enhancers. And they live to enrich the lives of others. And these are the people we're talking about who love and that love yields that love yields encouragement. The love leads to growth and that growth in love yields encouragement. So Paul says when you make sacrifices for others and love your brother, brethren, that yields a special kind of growth that is encouraging. And that's the kind of growth we want here. So that's verses 1 through 4. Now, look at verses 6 and 7 again. The growth there is said to yield thanksgiving. You received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is really related. We have encouragement in verse 1 through 4, thanksgiving and gratitude in verses 6 and 7. And they're, they're related in this way. Encouragement is completed in thanksgiving. That, that's the natural end to encouragement. That's where encouragement should end. And Jesus gives us a great example of that in Luke chapter 17. You know this story. It's told a lot around Thanksgiving. The story of the ten lepers. Luke 17, 11 through 19. Jesus encounters these ten lepers. They're in this hopeless situation. Leprosy was a terrible disease. Leading to death, you just rot away one piece at a time. And so Jesus heals them. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. So they had gone a few paces out. They were on their way and they were healed there, not just directly in front of Jesus. And out of the ten, only one of the lepers returned to thank Jesus. And he asked that question, heartbreaking question, where are the nine? And that's really true to life. 90% of people don't see the blessings right under their noses. They don't thank God for the good things that He does in their lives. They're ungrateful because they don't complete the encouragement. But this one leper, he completed the cycle after having been encouraged. He went back to thank the one who encouraged him. Now, that's a great example for us. And that's how the encouragement and the gratitude are related in Colossians. You have the encouragement in verses 1 through 4, and you have the thanksgiving in verses 6 through 7. And all of that comes from the growth that comes from love. Love produces growth, which yields encouragement that ends in thanksgiving. So you following me there? Where does ingratitude come from? Well, if you turn this on its head, ingratitude comes from failure to recognize the source of our blessings. Maybe you don't think about it at all, or maybe you think that you're responsible for all the good things that happen in your life. Either way, failure to recognize that God is the source of all our blessings yields ingratitude. 
Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul is talking about the sins of the Gentiles. And uh, he says they're without excuse in verse 20. And listen to what he says in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they, they knew God, but they didn't honor Him or give thanks. They didn't recognize the source of all the good things in their lives, and therefore they were ungrateful. James says in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we need to understand, if there's a blessing in our life, it comes from God, and that will, that will yield thanksgiving. Consider, there's so many things to consider for each and every one of us. Consider the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross for us. Consider his love for us. Despite our sinful rebellion, he still loves us. Consider God's point of view in all these things. Does he need us? He doesn't need us. Did he have to save us? He did not. Do we deserve it? Not at all. How did it make him feel when we turned our backs on him? He grieved over that. It's hurtful to him, and yet he continues to show us mercy. Think about all the gifts that you have in your life. You have salvation, but so many other things as well. I found this uh, statement. It wasn't attributed to anybody in particular. I can't give credit to whoever wrote it, but I want to read to you some of these blessings that we overlook. Just so we think about what God has given us. Listen to this. It's timely for this time of the year. If you own just one Bible, you are abundantly blessed. One-third of the world does not have access to God's Word. A third of the world. Billions of people. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the 150,000 in this country who will not survive the week. Now, we all have health problems, but if you have more health than you have illness which if you're here today, that's you, then you're more blessed than 150,000 people in this country who, who won't survive the week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pains of starvation, you're ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you attend the church without fear of harassment, arrest, or torture of death, you are more blessed than almost 3 billion people in the world. Turn on the news and you see in Iran, the people protesting mistreatment of women. Uh, this morning I saw in China, people were finally erupting over the lockdowns for COVID and the deaths of, of people who died in a fire. I think it was something like 20 people with several children died in an apartment fire because of COVID measures that kept the firefighters from going in immediately and putting out the flames. Think about Ukraine and Russia, the innocent people in both countries who are just looked upon as, as pawns on a 
chessboard, not human beings. And think about how you get to live. Freedom to do whatever you want, worship where you want, worship how you please. If you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of this world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, and spare change in a dish somewhere, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthiest. If your parents are still married and alive, you're very rare, even in the United States. If you hold up your head with a smile on your face and are truly thankful, you're blessed because the majority can, but most do not. If you can hold someone's hand, hug them, or even touch them on the shoulder, you're blessed because you can offer God's healing touch. If you prayed yesterday and today, you are in the minority because you believe in God's willingness to hear and answer prayer. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you are part of a very small minority in the world. Count your blessings. We sing, name them one by one. Count your blessings and know that God gives us all these things. And when you recognize the source, it yields gratitude. And so Paul's struggle was to bring love among the Colossians. That love produced growth. The growth yielded encouragement, which completed itself in thanksgiving. Where do we go from there? Here's the third point. Gratitude guards our hearts against delusion. By delusion, I mean you know, false teaching. This is a major theme in the book of Colossians. Uh, McKinsey did a good job at the beginning of the quarter going through the book of Colossians and, and detailing the kinds of false doctrine that Paul was fighting against. And I think McKinsey was correct in saying it wasn't just one type or another. There's a mixture of all these false ideas that are affecting the mindset of the Colossians. There's some Greek philosophy in there. There's some hybrid Gnosticism, there, there's some uh, Jewish asceticism and um, some worship of angels and, and all kinds of strange things, ideas that are all across the spectrum from do whatever feels good, you know, hedonism, or the ascetic idea that, um, you know, the more pain I bring into my life, the more righteous I am. The suffering that I bring in my life, I, I need to make myself suffer so that I can be more righteous. All of these ideas Paul denies because of the truth of Jesus Christ. Now verse 4 says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does that mean? Does anybody have a different translation there instead of plausible? persuasive arguments, enticing. Does somebody have anything different? I saw um, well-crafted arguments and uh, fine-sounding arguments. So these are arguments that are very persuasive. They're hearing them all the time. Expert teachers are bringing them before the Colossians to delude their minds. And Paul seems to be talking about Greek philosophy here and Jewish legalism and, and other things. 
But that's verse 4. Now look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Takes you captive. Does anybody have something besides takes you captive? See to it that no one takes you captive. What translations do you have there? I'm sorry. Say it again. Spoil you. Spoil, and so spoil there, we usually think of spoil in terms of rotten, like spoiled fruit, but spoil in that case has to do with the, like the spoils of war because the language here is military, of conquest. What else do you have? Cheat? Okay, that's good. Anybody have another translation there? Uh, I found others like delude, beguile, deceive. But spoil and takes you captive are more literal of conquerors coming, like the illustration I shared at the beginning of the lesson. Your soul is this fortified city, and here comes the enemy, and his main weapon is deceit. He's trying to take you captive with empty philosophy. He's trying to take you captive with deceit. Now, Paul just says philosophy and empty deceit. And some have looked at that and said, you know, intellectualism is wrong. Education is wrong. You can be educated out of Jesus. And, and that's not what Paul's saying. He was a very educated man, right? He could speak several languages. He was educated at the feet of Jewish rabbis. He knew Greek philosophy and quoted it in his letters. Paul was very well educated and he didn't think education was wrong. The word philosophy literally means the love of wisdom and there's nothing wrong with wisdom. But this is a particular kind of wisdom, right? How does he define the wisdom here? The philosophy. It's not just any philosophy, but it's empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, a, a phrase that kind of has to do with demonic entities or, you know, just worldly philosophies that don't um, take into account that there is a God in the world. And we're familiar with all of these, right? I'll go down a list in just a minute. But um, with, with Paul and the... The book of Colossians, these have to do with several things that uh, you are introduced to in chapter 2. For example, um, verse 16 of chapter 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. You know, there were, there were battles that Paul fought over division in the church, over what people ate. And some people were very forceful in their arguing that meat sacrificed to idols could condemn you. And others said, well, there's no idolatry in meat. Meat is meat. I'm going to keep eating meat. And the church at Corinth, for example, was divided over food. And that's not something that we should be fighting our battles about, right? Colossians 2.16, keep going. With regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, most of uh, Paul's readers 
came out of Judaism, at least in the first part of his ministry, and they grew up celebrating holidays, festivals. And uh, there was some religious significance to many, if not all, of these festivals. And they didn't want to quit celebrating with their families, even if you know, some of their family members had not accepted Christ. And then others, Gentiles coming from a different background, they might have had other festivals that they celebrated. There was division over that. And that's not what the battle was about either. Uh, if you go down later in chapter 2, he brings up the elemental, sp elemental spirits of the world again in verse 20. He says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, if that's what it's all about, why do you, do you submit to regulations? Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now he's getting into this asceticism, harm to the body, uh, harmful fasting, uh, being cruel to yourself. He says in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Just some examples of some of the false teaching that had deluded them. Now, we're not dealing with that, but we deal with our share of empty philosophy, right? Atheism, the idea that we just come from rocks and dirt that there is no God, there's nothing beyond the matter of this world, that somehow matter came into being on its own, and this drives the world. When you let it be carried out to its full consequences, what does it say? We're no different from animals. Might makes right, survival of the fittest, all of that. You see how destructive that is. Humanism. Again, no God, but we make our philosophy centered first on ourselves and then over what is best for the common good. Think about the atrocious deeds that were committed in the name of the common good throughout time. What happens to minorities who have rights whenever we're just looking out for what benefits the majority? Utilitarianism. Relativism, this is very, very big right now. The idea that everybody has their own truth, there is no absolute truth, you have your truth, I have my truth, they can contradict and we can live in harmony with one another. You know, it doesn't work at the doctor's office. You know, the doctor won't say, well, you have your truth and I have mine. Um, I think you have cancer, but you know, if you don't think so, that's fine. We don't use that in engineering. We don't use that in uh, science class. We only use that when it comes to religion and culture and philosophy. And it just doesn't work, right? The whole idea there is no truth, that in itself is a truth statement, right? It's a self-contradictory statement. So you can't say there's no truth without admitting there's an absolute truth. If, if not any other, there's one that there is no truth. And so these philosophies are empty, and they're according to the world system, not God's system. And we can't be deluded by them. So how do we keep from being deluded? We're thankful. We're grateful. Where do Muslim extremists recruit their armies? Do they go into happy homes where people are thankful for what they have? 
They go out and they look for disgruntled people who are angry, disillusioned, disenfranchised, and they find there people who are willing to listen to an extremist message. That's where terrorism is bred. That's where people are open to believe anything. And so how do we keep delusions, false ideologies, empty philosophies out of our homes, out of our churches, out of our lives? We're grateful. We constantly remind ourselves every day. Go back to the illustration that I began with. Your soul is a city. There are enemies without and within threatening to take you down. And there is a song that you can sing that will drive the enemy away. And that song is gratitude. And so when Paul fights to bring the gospel, that gospel knits us together in love. That love yields growth, which brings encouragement and thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving will guard us, verses 4 and 8, from delusions, from plausible arguments that might delude us, from Philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. That's the idea of Colossians 2, 1 through 8. So here's some quick things about how to practice gratitude today. Remember the process that we just discussed. Love produces growth. Growth yields encouragement and gratitude. Seek growth through worship, instruction, and fellowship in the church. The plant stage of discipleship. Don't count it out. It's very important that you come to worship services and Bible classes. It's very important that you attend fellowships and, and eat with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's very important that you develop friendships with other Christians and, and do, you know, take advantage of the opportunities this church gives you. And then individually, of course, I'm out of time, but individually to build gratitude in your lives, stay with God's word, continue to pray, Continue to believe in hope. And by doing that, you will shut off the philosophies of the world that bring you down. And you'll invite the Word of God into your life that will build you up. All right, thank you. We'll stop there with Colossians 2.8.